This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Let's get some thoughts on where we are today regarding the global health pandemic. Dr. Shanta Nunandi is Chief Medical Officer at the private healthcare data and solutions company Accolade. He's former health technology advisor to the World Bank. His new book, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed, is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It. He joins us on this Tuesday on the phone in Washington, D.C. Um, it is so nice to have you here with us, Dr. Nandi. Tell us, first of all, how are you and, and what are you seeing when it comes to COVID and the vaccine rollout and kind of where we are so far yeah i'm doing great thanks so much for the opportunity to be here um and uh yeah i I mean absolutely uh uh you know incredible times we live in um you know i I think what we're seeing is you know certainly so i still get a chance to practice um at a small safety net clinic outside of dc largely serving uh, a pretty vulnerable and uninsured population and it's it's been really promising i would say you know increasingly I'm, i'm seeing patients who've been fully vaccinated um i think hesitancy is, is come down significantly. Um, and I think it's we're seeing many more people coming back for routine medical care, which has been good to see. Um, in my other hat uh, at Accolade, where we work with you know, employers, large and small, all around the country, I think a real major uh, uh, topic of conversation right now is, okay, well, what's next? Like, what mm-hmm. do we have to do now to, to safely get our employees back in the office? And, and how do we start to loosen the reins uh, on what's been a pretty uh, strict uh, control up until now. Well, Dr. Nundy, what do we have to do? Because we know that the U.S. will not reach 100% vaccinations for many reasons. One, it's not approved for kids, but two, there are still adults who are hesitant. The president does plan to announce today that he's targeting 70% of U.S. adults getting the vaccine shot by July 4th. How, how is he going to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen around the country is that really that hesitancy and access are heavily correlated, right? If we can make it is dead simple for people to get the vaccine, that itself moves a significant portion of the population forward to wanting to get vaccinated. And so I think the idea of taking sort of mass vaccination sites that in some places aren't needed anymore and sort of deconstructing them and saying, hey, how do we actually just push this out into communities and maybe directly into homes um, Hmm. so that you have someone showing up in your doorstep saying, hey, I have the vaccine right now if you want it. Uh, I think that's going to help us get to that next sort of, uh, you know, five, 10 percent that we need to to continue to push forward. Sounds like a J&J one shot would be the perfect vaccine for that. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the, it, it's really interesting that you say that because I think the science of the J&J versus the other vaccines are, are somewhat similar. But I think from a delivery perspective, that sort of last mile perspective, yeah. I think J&J would be a really powerful tool in our toolkit. Yeah. So, OK, so what do you think? we need to do to get those people who are hesitant. We've made a lot of progress in a relatively short period of time in terms of getting vaccines into Americans' arms. So what is the thing that is ultimately holding it people back at this point? Is it access or is it just discomfort? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's definitely multiple things. I mean, I think access is still an issue. You know, I think um, particularly when you think about, you know, for some people, particularly those who are more hesitant, where they want to learn about the vaccine, where they want to get it, frankly, is with their primary care doctors or in mm. a healthcare setting. And still, you know, like my clinic, as an example, 
we actually have community partnerships. You, we can we have a sort of a large vaccination site at a church that we have. But if you see me today in clinic, uh, I I can give you a flu shot. I can get you a shingle shot. I cannot give you uh, the the COVID vaccine in the course of, of a normal clinic visit. And so I think that's one piece of it um, for sure. I think another piece is we needed to make the incentives of getting vaccinated much clearer for people. I think we've been cautious. I think that's been good, but I think we need to make much clearer if you get vaccinated, here's what that's going to mean for your life, whether that's your work or your personal life. We need to sort of up the ante on the benefits for those who are vaccinated. Do you you think the CDC has been too hesitant to do that with messaging? Like this would have been more effective had the CDC from early on come out and said, hey, when you are six weeks past that first shot, when you are two weeks past that second shot, you are free to go back to living your normal life. Yeah, I think they've been more. I think they've been a little too cautious, and that's right. I don't know if the exact guidance is is, is what you're saying, but I think it's right. It's I'm, what I'm saying is like should should not. they yeah. should they be doing that? Should they be or or some sort of closer return to normalcy and and something yeah. sooner? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and and I think part of the messaging too is just, it's got to be just much more understandable for people about what it means for the things that matter to them. There's sort of a design element, if you would, to how we're communicating that I think has also uh, been missed as well. So I want to talk about your book, if we may, because it's called Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It. And safe to say that we've had a lot of conversations about disruption. We have Lyft you know, reporting after the close, like they disrupt transportation and kind of uh, the driving world, if you will. What's interesting is healthcare has been, I think, one of those areas that most people would agree it's taken a while for it to be disrupted and still has a long way to go. You talk about in this book that if the healthcare system were an emperor, COVID-19 tragically revealed that it had no clothes. So what do we learn from these past 12, 13 months? Obviously telemedicine, that's the obvious one, and I'm guessing it's gonna stay with us, but what else? How do we move towards a more transparent, efficient, productive healthcare system? Yeah, so I think there's two elements of what we learned, right? I think one is just this idea, this sort of magnification of the longstanding failures of the healthcare system. Right. I think it's hard to find people these days that, that don't deeply understand how inaccessible healthcare is, uh, how inequitable healthcare is, um, how inefficient it is. And I think that matters because I think what was a reality for pockets of Americans for a while, you know, those with multiple chronic conditions, those who are lower income, I think now is a shared lived experience of, of nearly all of us. Right. We've all had that experience of, you know, how do I get a vaccine um, and navigating that? How do I get a test? And, and I think that that actually matters in terms of the sort of public um, being able to move forward to better care models. The second thing we learned is that actually healthcare can be way more flexible in a crisis than we thought, right? I, I think even the, the most sort of expert folks didn't expect that clinics like mine in the course of two weeks would go from never doing any virtual visits to, to nearly 80% virtual um, uh, within a two-week span, right? I, I don't think we expected that we'd be able to spin up drive-through testing, right? We for, for decades now, we take people that are sick coughing and sneezing on each other and we right. put them in a waiting room to cough and sneeze on each other. And now we have a better way to do that and we scale that. And we're also using data in new ways, right? So in my clinic, we've had an electronic record for a long time. But this is one of the first times where we've taken data out of there and used it to proactively call people who are, who are sicker or higher risk that needed the vaccine. And so I think that that's a huge part of what we've learned too is that change is possible. And I think that the demand for that change is greater than ever. 
And I, I have to say that having experienced a virtual visit with a doctor, and I thought, this isn't going to work. How is he going? You know, and it was pretty comprehensive and incredible. And as a result, I was much more involved because I had to do things that he would have been normally doing to yeah. me without getting too specific. But it, but it was interesting that I was much more involved and thoughtful in my questions as a result because I was understanding what was going on. It's been, I mean, for me, it's been hit or miss. It's been really has good. It? From, yeah, from a pediatrician mm-hmm. perspective, being able to connect with our pediatrician has been really good. Yeah. But for, 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 you know, I, I thought I hurt myself riding my bike over the summer. And it like, you know, the doctor couldn't like actually check to see if I was hurt right. by pressing on all the areas that he would normally press on. Right. It's not perfect. Yeah. So, so what is the next iteration of this? Dr. Nandi. Yeah, I think where healthcare needs to go, and I think we one of the things that we're missing is a clear vision of where we need to go. And and what I've sort of described in the book is that I think healthcare needs to become distributed, it needs to become digitally enabled, and it needs to become decentralized. And what I mean by that is distributed means care is is care happens where health happens. It's closer to where patients are at home and the community increasingly on their phone. To your point, it can't just be about virtual only. That's an important one, but that sometimes you're going to need to see a doctor in person, but it doesn't mean that care can't start uh, closer to home. And that in some cases, maybe home visits that make sense. In some cases, it may, may mean employer, on-site clinic. So that's sort of distributed. Digitally enabled is really saying, look, the real role of data and technology in healthcare is to extend the relationships that are central to care, right? We think we've all learned during the pandemic that trust is essential and that trust between a patient and a provider is ultimately what drives a lot of the outcomes. But up until now, a lot of the technology investments we've made has frankly been neutral to negative on that relationship. The EMR, the electronic medical record being the best example of that. Mm-hmm. And then decentralized. We need to put way more resources in the hands of frontline health workers and patients. Right? So one of the things I advocated on early on was, you know, when everyone was concerned about testing, 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 they said, well, you know, we said, well, why, don't, why can't patients just test themselves at home? So that's absurd. You know, the patients can't do that. And and, and, and and so we had these stories of people paying hundreds, sometimes over a thousand dollars just to get a test for COVID. Today, mm-hmm. you can walk into a CVS or right. Walgreens and for, for $14, you can get two kits. So $14 a kit. And in 15 minutes on your kitchen table, you can test yourself for COVID and get a pretty accurate answer. That's the direction I think we need to go. So, so what are the permanent changes that you would like to see in order for us to be prepared for what we not affectionate, not so affectionately call the next pandemic? Like, do we need to have the vaccination infrastructure already in place so we can respond right away? Do we need to have the testing infrastructure already in place so we can respond? Do we need to change the way we do emergency use authorization with the FDA so they can be nimble? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's all of the above. Uh, I think in addition, I think a lot of the ones that you just suggested are from a public health perspective. I think about it also from a healthcare delivery perspective, right? right? So, for example, if we can distribute more care to people's homes, what that means, it, it's like the classic, you don't want to put all your eggs in, in one basket. It's when you rely on a hospital and that hospital suddenly is overwhelmed, guess what happens? Like, you can't do elective care. You can't safely hospitalize people. And we saw that, too. And so, actually, sort of spreading out where care happens into more sites would actually enable us to be much more resilient when those things happen. Um, a big part of this is about data. I mean, the fact that we couldn't even answer simple questions like at any given day, how many people in this country are hospitalized with COVID, let alone how many of them are, are African-American or Latino or let alone what their outcomes are. 
is, a, is an absolute travesty, especially given that we've just spent billions and billions of dollars on taking health information and making it digital. And so we absolutely need to finally solve this interoperability issue for many reasons. But one of them is so that, you know, we can be much more responsive so that when we have a pandemic, we're seeing the data, we're understanding the complications, and we're being able to understand what treatments are and are not working right. um, in closer to real time. Isn't the end game here in terms of what we've learned over the last year that if you're a healthy individual, no guarantee, but you're much mm. more likely to be able to fight a virus or some other disease or ailment. You've got a chapter in here about patient-directed, empowering people to guide their own care, and you talked about being a third-year medical student going through the hospital and how you kept seeing patient after patient suffering from health problems that were completely preventable. And are we ready for a wellness healthcare system that's about keeping people away from doctors out of hospitals, which, as you know, is quite the financial and business juggernaut right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the other uh, stories in the book, and one that's really close to me because it involves my own mom, is the fact that you know, my mom has had diabetes, type 2 diabetes for 25 years, been on insulin for 10. You know, she kept hearing all these reports that, hey, if you have diabetes, your risk of COVID is higher, to your point, right? And she said, I can't, I can't handle this anymore. And so she signed up for a program that got her 24-7 health coach, uh, connected her with a peer, someone else who also has diabetes and comes from the same culture that we do, got her a virtual care doctor. And within a month, my mom went from being on insulin for 10 years, uh, never having her sugars controlled, to being completely off of insulin and, wow. and, and achieving a state we call diabetes reversal. And so I think that, you know, with the third wave of digital health that we've seen, um, some of these models that are coming out, I think are exactly the direction we need to go to say, we don't need a, yet necessarily another drug for diabetes that's 1% better for, you know, 100 times the cost. But we need to start putting our investment from an NIH perspective, from a payer perspective, is in the idea of actually preventing disease or, or actually reversing or controlling disease. So where does that education start, though? Because it doesn't necessarily, we don't want it to take a pandemic for, for that to happen. Yesterday. <laughs> right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and where does it start? I mean, I think it starts in, in, in a lot of places, but I think at least the world that I think a lot about is, is the employer world. I think yeah. employers are, are, are heavily incentivized to manage the health of their employees, not only because they manage their medical costs, but also because that that productivity, whether it's, you know, missing, uh, you know, work for appointments, whether it's mental health, those things affect their bottom line significantly. And, but I think that, you know, there's been a little bit of a lag in that world where, you know, some of the solutions that they're, that they, uh, that they're supporting aren't necessarily the ones that are getting to that. There's this whole cottage industry of people that are still saying, hey, you know, buy Fitbit for all your employees. I mean, that's not mm. really been proven to work. And so I think that's where I think some education needs to happen uh, to actually unlock some scale. Well, I got to tell you, interesting conversation, interesting book. You talk about checklists for every decade of life, you know, of just how to keep yourself healthy so that you don't get to a situation where you're ill. Um, really great conversation. Dr. Shantanu Nandi, he's a chief medical officer at the private healthcare data and solutions company, Accolade, former health technology advisor to the World Bank. And that book that we talked about, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It. My guess is we'll continue the conversation he has here in his book uh, in the future. Look, I, one thing that 
that I was thinking about the entire mm. time Dr. Nundi was speaking is is about education and, and, and thinking about how a healthy lifestyle starts at such a young age totally. and the connection between mortality, uh, comorbidities, and um, what we need to do as Americans in order to make sure that we become healthier as a whole uh, in order to be, because look, it's all about being on the defensive uh, when it comes to our health. We do it with driving, we do it with other things, yeah. and it makes sense with healthcare. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, Bloomberg Terminal readers uh, and users are reading this big time. It's the most read story about the bank bosses who are looking to say, so long to remote working, Tim. Well, you know what? It turns out that the bosses (laughs) want it. The underlings don't really want it as much. Jenny Serene is finance reporter for Bloomberg News and joins us on the phone from here in New York. Uh, Jenny, okay, what is the disconnect between management and employees? Management wants people back, but employees are saying... Hey, not so fast. I think the the disconnect really comes in that employees are um, just wanting more flexibility on a more permanent basis. So even if they're open to coming back, and even if they, you know, are are wanting to see their colleagues and be in the office again, they want the ability to work from home, um, you know, one to two days a week, and kind of decide when that is an option for them. Um, I think a lot of the rub just comes from the fact that we've had obviously this really terrible hard year. Banks' profits have been, you know, soaring through the roof. People are obviously productive. Um, so they're just like, hey, we've, we've done our best. We've done a great job. Can't you trust us with this decision? This is like I could see a toddler. Okay, um, uh, little, little Johnny, I need you to do this. Why? Well, because I need you back. Why? Well, um, because I need you back. Um, well, we're, we're productive, so why do you need me back? Like, I could, like, you know, profitable, the banks have done really well. We know that. You know that. Um, it's working. We heard from a lot of these big bank execs early on are saying, listen, I think, I remember James Gorman, Morgan Stanley saying, hey, this is kind of working. Maybe we reduce our real estate footprint. So do they need to make the case to the underlings in order to get them back? And, you know, or does it not really matter that underlings, ultimately, you got to come back? No, I think it definitely matters. I mean, I think these these executives are realizing that a lot of this is just messaging and kind of making it clear, you know, why they want folks back, not just, you know, this is the date we expect you to be here. Um, and I think a big thing that's driving that actually is, um, you know, it's not that they really think that every single person needs to be in the office so that they can monitor them and track them. I think a large thing is culture. You know, these yeah. banks really are seeing their cultures kind of break down and degrade. Mm. Um, young people, you know, there's so much training that happens kind of in person they haven't really been able to replace that in the remote world. So I think that those are things that they're trying to kind of align people around and make them realize, like, hey, someone did this for you. You kind of need to pass it on to the next generation. Um, but so much of that is just the messaging. And I think these, like, heavy-handed memos that come out, that's really where the rub is, is kind of, um, you know, taking place. Hey, Jenny, where does burnout come into this? And to what extent can, can burnout be tied to remote work? Yeah, I think, I mean, that is a huge one. I think especially given the burnout that we're seeing among junior bankers, um, I think a lot of bank bosses seem to think that that is really because there's no outlets for these guys, um, you know, on the weekends or anything like that. And so they're just always working and, and always on, always logged in. And so For some reason, I'm think, just thinking of the show industry. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's very, it's very Hollywood, what, what we're hearing and seeing out there. I, I think these guys are tired and, and they've been working super hard, super long hours. And, and I think banks think that 
um, you know, having that office environment, having a way to, you know, a little bit of camaraderie in terms of working with others, but then having a way to blow off steam after work, whether that's the gym or going out for drinks or doing dinners or whatever, um, you know, I think their, their hope is that that will, um, you know, really help on the burnout front. I thought it was really interesting in your story. You guys so, cite um, an Accenture survey of 400 North American financial services executives, and you and the survey kind of points out a little bit of the disconnect between what bosses want for office work and the reality uh, they're expecting because we have heard from a lot of employers, financial sector or others, right, about reducing their real estate footprint, which to me sends a different message potentially. Yeah, I think so. One of the other things I think is driving this and um, and will be interesting to kind of see how it plays out is just over the course of the last year, we've all done so much more digitally than we ever had before. Um, so banks, as they're able to like invest more in technology and people are comfortable with doing all of this digital stuff, they're able to, I think, cut a lot of jobs. And so I think some of what we're going to be seeing on the real estate front is just the fact that they're, you know, able to reduce their their actual headcount as well, just because so many, so much more is happening, you know, in an automated digital way. Um, and it's happening much faster because the pandemic has just made us all that much more comfortable with that stuff. Do you, do you, do you anticipate that there will be some sort of hybrid environment f- with these banks in, you know, I mean, even I don't want to say permanently because we don't, don't know what it's going to look like, but every return to office kind of has this asterisk, right? Where it's where it's hybrid, where it is not every person every day because of social distancing. Like, what does that look like a year from now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think to be honest, I think the banks that offer more flexibility, it sounds like they're going to be the winners in terms of the war for talent. You know, huh. especially with women, we had that in the story today that just. Women are really craving that flexibility, especially after being given it for much of the last year. So I think, you know, the banks that offer it will probably have a little bit of a leg up. Um, but then, you know, we've got two really vocal banks out there, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, saying, no, we, we believe in the future of the office and we want you guys back in. So I think there's a little bit of kind of war of the world happening here. Um, and it'll be kind of interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, I do wonder where we're going to be like a year from now with all of this. That's hard to say. Great story, Jenny Serene. Thank you so much. It is among our most read on the Bloomberg today. Jenny Serene, of course, Bloomberg News Finance reporter, joining us on the phone from New York City. You know, good questions you pose, and I guess time will tell about how this plays out. Yeah, I think there's also some sort of element of like a self-fulfilling prophecy here, right? When one bank does it, other banks do it. And then when you start to see people back at the office, more and more people hopefully want to get back to the office. The camaraderie's there. Or the bank that's back that gets the big deal exactly. versus the bank that isn't there back. There it is, yes. <laughs> it comes down to that. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So just about uh, ten and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Time for the drive to the close with Anne Maletti, head of active equity over at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $590 billion in assets under management. She joins us on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin on this Tuesday. Anne, how are you? 
I'm doing well, Carol. How are you? Doing okay. Hanging in there. Um, talk to us about the trade today because we are saying, listen, it's all driven by some of those big tech names, and that's what's dragging down, certainly the NASDAQ, but just kind of the overall tone. How do you see it? Well, we've seen this change in leadership happen, right, where you see the value rally, and then you see the growth rally, and it, and it keeps, you know, the market seems to be changing its mind daily. But I think overall, you know, what we've had so far this year is a relatively strong market and the economic picture looks even better. I mean, the news that we continue to get is surprisingly strong, but you know, a lot of that's priced in. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, we've all been at the party for a very long time and we're just getting a little tired out. And I feel like that's what the market's acting like. It's, it's more about what are we going to see in the next six to nine months. That's what the market cares more about um, right now. And I think that's what it's trying to price in. And it's difficult when there's a lot of uncertainty in the, in the future. So what does that mean for the rest of 2021? And what we've heard from CEOs has been, hey, we're not even at a point where we can actually tell you what we think we mm -hmm. are going to sell this year. I right. mean, some companies aren't even giving guidance still. still and investors yeah. don't like that. Yeah, no, Tim, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. It's, um, when when our portfolio managers are listening to the earnings call, one, they're hearing surprisingly great news, right? We have companies that are surprising to the upside at a substantial amount, right? But the key things that they're listening to are also things like there's bottlenecks in the system, there's rising input costs, the transportation costs are increasing as well. And so those things are kind of the the micro level things that companies are used to dealing with, but there's macro issues too, like policy changes, tax increases, other things that CEOs, CFOs know are changing, but they can't quantify them yet. And um, they don't know how they're going to manage their business around them. And that's why there is hesitancy around giving broader guidance. And, and so, you know, investors in the market are trying to price, you know, that in and they're trying to measure risk versus reward and, and fundamentals i think of each individual company are becoming more and more important to investors so the big tech names that are dragging down the trade today that we're seeing in um i had a list somewhere applied materials nvidia a lot of chip names apple paypal ibg ipg photonics um is another semiconductor company so What's your thinking on some of the big tech names that have provided so much momentum for this market over the past year or so? Well, you know, I never look at just one day of trading and get too worried about what one day says. Mm -hmm. But certainly, um, when you look at it over a long period of time, you kind of, you know, it does, it does make you pause. Look, I think there are certainly companies in there that you mentioned that still have very, very good fundamentals. And more importantly, that have pricing power. And if you think about, um, you know, the world as it may look six months from now, I think pricing power is going to be something that's extremely important. If you worry at all about inflation, whether mm -hmm. it's transitory um, or if it's going to get worse, pricing power is extremely important for companies. So investors should focus on that. Um, and then also, you know, if you have changes in tax policy, again, you're going to be able to have to price to, to, to transition that cost over to the consumer. And so that's what um, our managers are focused on is how do you transition 
that off to the consumer because um, margins will be compressed over time. And, and, and you haven't had to worry about that. Revenue, yeah. top-line growth has been so strong. You know, margins haven't been a problem, but we expect that that could change toward the year end. Well, and kind of timely in a day where commodities jumped to their highest in almost a decade. And, you know, mm-hmm. we have seen the rebound in, in, in particular, the developed economy around the world. So demand for metals, food, energy are all up. And we've also seen some poor weather harming crops and transportation bottlenecks, which you just talked about, curbing supplies. Is it transitory, like we've heard from the Federal Reserve, so that we're going to have maybe some discomfort with some prices uh, ticking higher? We've seen that already until these bottlenecks and these supply chains kind of get back to quote-unquote normal? Well, I do think a lot of it is transitory. There's a lot of pent-up demand in the system, and and we all know that, right? You can see it in your everyday lives. Um, You know, you just look at the auto numbers and what we've seen in all-time high since July of get July of 05, um, you know, amazing numbers. But that's because, you know, this, this, the economy was almost shut down for a year. Right. So some of that is transitory, but it's transitory until it's not. Yeah. And do we, I think... Yeah, do we that's, get there? That's kind of what I'm do, do that um, we get to that point where it's not transitory anymore? Well, that's, you know, I don't know that for sure. And I'm not an economist and I'm not mm-hmm. going to practice being one. But, um, but what we're doing is watching the data very carefully, you know, as is the Fed, right? And I, I think they've been quick to adjust and change when the data changes. And I think that they'll do that this time around. And so our um, portfolio managers and analysts are certainly watching it on a micro level at the company level and paying very, very close attention to what all the input costs look like. What's that specific moment for you, though, when you say to yourself and you say to your colleagues, okay, this is not transitory? Well, I think, you know, again, there, there's all of the measures that we're looking at on a micro level, company by company. And for a long, you know, for long only in equity investors, it's measuring risk rewarding, picking the companies that really have that pricing power and who, who can weather the storm better. And there will be companies, there always are, that um, can actually do well during inflationary periods deflationary periods, unfortunately, are what we always want to avoid, and and so does the Fed. So um, it's not good for the economy long term, um, and, and we know that, but 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 we're trying to manage around what we what were delivered. Hey, just have about a minute or just under a minute left here, Anne. Um, you would not be surprised to see a correction, ten to twelve percent, before the second half is over. That's right. Um, I think you know again, given the returns that we've seen, not just this year, but certainly last year, a ten to twelve, even fifteen percent correction would not be surprising to us. In fact. In some ways, it would be welcome um, because it would give us the ability to buy stocks at a much more attractive. Price. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. I mean, do you have you made put cash on the sidelines in order to oper- bounce on that opportunity when it arises? There, and we only have about fifteen seconds left. Yeah, yeah. There are buy lists on every single one of our investment <laughs> teams waiting to react to anything like that. <laughs> All right. Is that kind of normal, though? I mean, isn't it normal? That, that you... It is. It is. Okay. But, but it changes, right? It yeah. changes with price. Yep. Well, interesting day. Good to get your thoughts and good to get some macro thoughts on you. And I think you're among the first that have been talking to us about some kind of correction, formal correction this year. So um, I appreciate that specificity. Time uh, to uh, say goodbye, unfortunately, to Anne Maletti, because we're getting close to the closing bell here. Anne Maletti, Head of Active Equity at Wells Fargo Asset Management. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.